Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to read for us this incredible story, the conversion of Saul. We know in the scriptures that Saul is Paul. They're one and the same. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. The Bible uses those interchangeably. I will too, not to confuse anyone here. But let's talk about what Jesus does in this man's life. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Lord, you thunder at the center of this chapter, of this book, of this cosmos. I pray that we would have scales fall from our eyes to see you as you truly are, high and lifted up. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've studied through the book of Acts, we said that we've gotten to this conversion corridor. So in the early chapters of Acts, we've seen the gospel preached to crowds and crowds have come to faith, but now the Holy Spirit zeroes in and it's individuals who are coming into the kingdom one at a time. And so we saw Simon the magician and then the Ethiopian eunuch, and now we have Saul, and soon we're going to have Cornelius. Boom, boom, boom. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter how much you have resisted the Lord. It doesn't matter where your history has taken you. It doesn't matter what evidence you have mounted against faith. It doesn't matter how much you resist. Jesus will have his way with you 
and with me. Now we can do that the easy way or the hard way. We can come in happy submission to his name now, confessing our sins, trusting in him alone, bowing the knee before Jesus in worship, or we will do that on that great and terrifying judgment day when he returns. But either way, be assured, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is, and we will acknowledge it as such. But when you think about conversions, there's got to be a special place in the church's history for this man, Saul, who comes to faith and God uses tremendously. We've kind of been focused on the original 12 apostles and Jerusalem in the first half of the book of Acts, but by chapter 13, Luke just zeroes in on Saul and where he goes and what he does being launched out of the church in Antioch. He's going to give himself away to the Great Commission. Some guess that he'll travel 10,000 miles by land and by sea to plant a bunch of churches that turn around and plant a bunch of churches. He's going to go on to author half the books that we have in the New Testament. And that's a pretty impressive resume. And it feels like a huge win that God was able to get a guy like Paul on his team until you read the chapter and it's Jesus who stands at the center and Paul very much on the periphery of what God is doing through Christ. Jesus breaks Saul down. Jesus rearranges the pieces of Saul's life and then Jesus puts Saul back together again. Those are my three points. And I tried to make an analogy with Humpty Dumpty falling and pieces and the more I worked the weirder it got so we don't have an analogy with Humpty Dumpty it's just smash rearrange put back together again so number one Jesus breaks Saul down in verses one through nine now some of us are converted through a soft Sunday school lesson on the kindness of Jesus And some of us are converted by a nagging friend that just won't shut up about the gospel. But some of us are converted by cancer. And some of us are converted by hardship. And some of us are converted because we face a trial that we cannot overcome. Some of us will come into the kingdom with this warm embrace and some of us will only ever come into this kingdom if Jesus will put us squarely in our place with respect to him. And so Saul's gonna do this the hard way and he's gonna join men like Manasseh and Nebuchadnezzar who need to be brought very, very low before they're ready to hear the good news of God's grace. When we last left Saul, he was standing over Stephen's dead body. He gave credibility to the stoning of Stephen, and then it gets worse. He, in our passage, gets these letters from the high priests. He wants to grow his persecution anti-ministry. So he sets out on this journey towards Damascus that actually sounds like an anti-Great Commission. Jesus said, I want you to start in Jerusalem and go out and make disciples. And Saul says, I'm going to start in Jerusalem and go out and break disciples. I've got this anti-Great Commission ministry to destroy the church. 
And he grabs these letters and he takes this 140-mile trek from Jerusalem to the northwest to get to Damascus, which is already a sizable city. It's already got a number of synagogues. And already within those synagogues, there are a number of Jews who follow the way they have begun to worship Jesus. That's what Paul knows about. That's what he's headed towards. But what happens on the road to Damascus sounds more like a confrontation than a conversion. Because Saul, he's not going to convert out of this growing sense of guilt or shame, as some of us will, or he's not going to convert out of a growing sense of the evidence of Christianity, the apologetics behind our faith, as some of us will. He's not going to convert out of a desperation of getting to the end of his road at being at the absolute rock bottom, as some of us will. Saul is at the height of his power and influence doing business with the chief priests and celebrated by them. And when he is at the peak, he is dropped to the ground before the absolute majesty of Jesus. That's when his conversion comes. I have the Caravaggio painting of this scene in my prayer closet upstairs, and it's pathetic. Paul is on his back, his eyes are closed, his hands are raised up. He is in absolute submission to the Lord. And someone said, when I saw that, I thought of you (laughs) and gave me that poster to put on my wall to remind me of absolute humility before Jesus. Jesus just starts right in. Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting Stephen? Not why are you persecuting the church? Not why are you headed to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me, the risen Jesus? Because when you mess with the least of these, you mess with me. When my church is suffering, I feel that. Why are you persecuting me? And then Saul, who is going to build an empire-wide ministry on words is reduced to just one speaking line in the entire passage. He squeaks out, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I want you to get up. I want you to go to Damascus. And I want you to wait for your orders there. No questions, no suggestions. We're going to do this my way. Here's what you're going to do next. And we leave Saul a broken man, stripped of his power, stripped of his influence. He has no power to do harm. He's blind. He's led about by the hand the entire course of his life. All the plans and designs he had for himself and what he was going to do with his life have been brought to a halt in a moment. Verse 9 says he doesn't eat or drink or see anything for three days. He sounds like a dead man in a tomb waiting to be resurrected. I think that imagery is there. It's no wonder Paul will later say of his conversion, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live because Saul died the day he met Jesus. That's his introduction to Christianity. He is brought very low. Jesus breaks him down. So that number two, Jesus can rearrange the pieces of Saul's life. That's what he begins to do with this very broken man. 
Now, we'll come back to Ananias in a minute, but he's the unlucky disciple who has the task to go tell the news to the most dangerous man in Christendom what Jesus wants for him. But actually, I want to camp out in verses 15 and 16. These are the terms of Jesus' call on Saul's life because Saul had terms of his call. He had an idea of where his life was going and what he wanted to do. And Jesus intervenes and says, no, we're going to do it my way. And this is the terms of your call. So this is Jesus speaking to Ananias to speak to Saul, verse 15. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, there's a couple of things that stand out about this call that I want us to see. And number one is, he says that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. Did you see that description in the text? Friend, you and I, in the kingdom, are only ever tools and instruments in God's hands. That's it. He's the workman, we are the instrument. He walks into his workshop of providence in which he does his bidding and hanging on the wall are all his tools which include any event in the world, any catastrophe, any scope or course of human history, any king's heart or presidents that is in his hand and certainly any individual one of us and when God needs a tool, he plucks it off of that workshop bench and he sets to work using that tool for his purpose. When God needs a hammer or a crowbar, he grabs the Enneagram eights in the room, right? And he just starts breaking stuff. And when he needs a feather duster for some light work, he grabs his Myers-Briggs ISFJ and sets about doing it. And when he needs to put people in our midst like sandpaper to rub off the rough edges of impatience, he grabs his mourning people and they do his bidding for him. And we are sanctified because of them. But whichever tool, for whichever purpose, you and I are only ever the tool. We are only the tool and never the carpenter We are only the clay and never the potter. We are here to do his bidding. And honestly, the sooner we realize that, recognize that, own that in the kingdom, the better off we will be, the less painful this will be. And so the Lord has need of a seven-eighths inch lug nut called the evangelization of the Gentiles. That's the situation. And he grabs this tool called the Apostle Paul, the socket wrench right off the wall, and applies it to the situation. And it is an instrument in God's powerful hands. That's what we are. We're tools. Number two, he says this in verse 15. This is interesting to me. He says, okay, he's an instrument, he's a tool, we're an instrument, we're tools, to carry my name. That's what we're going to do. We're going to carry Jesus' name. Now, that's an interesting verb choice to me, because a lot of ministry is speaking, and so it would be natural for me to hear him say, I want them to speak my name, or I want them to 
tell people and teach people about my name. Or I want them to hand out tracts to people with my name printed on them. But he doesn't say any of those verbs. He says, we will carry his name. And the Greek verb there for carry connotes lugging around a hefty weight. Like you're going to pick something up and carry something heavy. We saw that word back in Acts chapter 3 when the man born lame needed to be picked up and carried every single day to the temple. And we're going to see that word in Acts chapter 21 when Paul is surrounded by a mob and the Roman soldiers need to pick him up and carry him up a flight of stairs to get him away from danger. It connotes picking up something heavy and lugging this thing around. And Jesus says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take that anvil off the floor called Jesus' name. You're going to pick it up and you're going to carry it. Jesus' name is heavy. Jesus' name is weighty. Jesus' name is glorious. It's not a name you pay attention to just at Christmas and Easter. It's not a name that you just draw out around the dinner table when you pray for the food. It's not a name that we take in vain lightly. Jesus' name is roughly the heft and weight of a Roman cross. And Jesus says, if anybody wants to come after me, let him, let her deny themselves pick up my name and allegiance to my name daily and follow me. It's a heavy name that we bear. The third part of this call is he says, you're going to be an instrument. You're going to carry my name. And then he starts to rattle off all of this stuff in the future before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer. Now, I got a huge question about this verse that will betray to us as we listen if we are picking up the hefty name of Jesus that the book of Acts is putting down. When Jesus rattles off everything that Saul will do and will suffer, my question is this. Is he guessing what will happen or is he telling Saul what will happen? You see the difference? Is he presuming or is he promising? Like, did you grow up in a household when your dad said, you're not going to leave this room today until it's clean? Was he guessing what was going to happen to your Saturday or was he telling you what was going to happen to your Saturday. Do you serve a Jesus who, when he says to Saul, this is what you will do and this is what you will suffer, that this is Jesus's best educated guess for how the gospel is going to work in the Roman Empire? Or do you serve a Jesus who knows beyond a shadow of a doubt we're going to do things this way? The first is a very little Jesus. He's a little Jesus who doesn't know. He's just guessing 
what the next 30 years of Paul's life will look like. He's converted in his 30s. He's going to be beheaded in his 60s. We're just guessing what these decades hold. He's a slight Jesus. He's a diminutive Jesus. He's a buddy Jesus who is near me. He's with me. He's by my side. We're going to face this big bad world together. He's my co-pilot. We're going to share the wheel. We don't know what is coming, but whatever does come, I'm sure that Jesus is nice and he will help me whatever trials come my way. You can worship that kind of Jesus and serve that kind of Jesus and bank your life on that kind of Jesus, but I would be remiss if I didn't warn you that little Jesuses are little help when big problems come. A little Jesus is little help when the terms of my call to serve him seem so large I couldn't possibly do it. And a little Jesus will be little help when my sin which so easily entangles me feels so large it is overwhelming. And a little Jesus will be little help if doubt creeps in that is so thick and so pervasive it's hard to put one foot of faith in front of the other. So if you plan to grab a hold of a little Jesus, I am warning you, it is a dangerous world and you might not make it and your little Jesus might not make it. So think again, is Jesus guessing or is Jesus telling? Because if Jesus can look a man in the eye and call out what three decades of his life is going to look like from the outset, then we have on our hands a very big Jesus indeed. You're going to leave here. You're going to speak the gospel to these people. You're going to suffer in this way. I will have you as long as I will have you, and you will be immortal until your day has come. And only then, when I'm done with Gentiles, and I'm done with kings, and I'm done with the children of Israel, and I'm done with all you have to suffer, then and only then does Nero, by the power of my hand, have any right and place to take your life. I have done my bidding. Is that the kind of Jesus we are going to get up and serve? The Jesus who puts his purpose in motion and none can thwart it. I tell you that's glorious news. I tell you that on the day of your commission, that is glorious news. There is not a single good deed we will perform that Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter 2, has not laid out beforehand for us to do. There's not a single person we're going to bump into in the lunch line or at the water cooler at work or outside as we leave this place that Jesus has not foreordained that we will cross paths with. There's not a single thing we will suffer, a single inconvenience that will beset us, a single way we were born, a single way we look, a single thing that has happened in our history that plagues us to this day that is not in the perfect 
powerful, majestic hands of Jesus. He will do his bidding. That's what he does. He breaks us down. He rearranges the pieces that we had in the order we wanted them, and he puts them in the order he wants them so that finally he can put us back together again. You'll notice in Scripture that Jesus never, ever calls us to do something. He does not equip us and empower us to do. And in the next three verses, 17, 18, and 19, I count four things that Jesus gives Saul that will be life and death for his commission. Number one, he gives him his sight, which I take to be physical and I take to be spiritual. Number two, he gives him baptism, which Paul looks back on later in Acts chapter 22 and says, this was the washing away of my sins and my forgiveness. Number three, he gives him new friends. Ananias that never even wanted to come to his house now walks in the door and greets him as brother. You are family and one of us. And number four, he fills him with the Holy Spirit. Friend, this is great and glorious news. That when Jesus comes to us, he breaks us down. He breaks us down of our idols. He breaks us down of our adultery. He breaks us down of the best laid plans we have for our life. He rearranges those pieces to his glory and by his bidding. And he will put us back together again, giving us, filling us with absolutely everything we need for life and godliness. How great and glorious is this Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, that is the name that is above all names. It is duly earned and duly defended. You have snapped us into attention to yourself to save us and then send us out to do your bidding. And Lord, I pray above all that we rest in the precious, powerful hands of Jesus as we do what you call us to do. Have your way with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.